Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. So hello again. It's great to be back for the difficult second podcast. Um, I'm delighted to hear we have some listeners out there. Richie, we haven't been talking to ourselves entirely so far. The numbers are looking good, David. So far, we've got about 370 downloads in the first 30 days. And we've had listeners in six continents, which is amazing. North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Australasia, and Africa. That's really great. It's good to be able to take people on the journey with us through osteoporosis. Hopefully, we're going to get a lot. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things, as you know, that we have really good feedback, people asking questions, people asking us to cover different topics, and people responding even to things that we, um, that we talked about in, in the first episode. So... Uh, we had a, a rough idea of what we wanted to cover in some of our next few episodes. We have uh, moved that about a bit to try to be more responsive, I think, to to the feedback we've had so far. And uh, I think we can reassure people that if you have something you really want to hear about, do keep listening and we will get around to it eventually. Slowly we'll work our way through it. And I think we have a really, really good start today. We're starting off with perhaps an unusual topic today, and that is talking about risk. Now, risk is something we hear about a lot, the risk of catching coronavirus, the risk of getting side effects from the the, uh, vaccine for coronavirus. Risk is a big subject in terms of business, in terms of government, in terms of science. And risk is a big part of osteoporosis, and risk is a big part of deciding on treatment uh, on osteoporosis. And in the first episode, you heard us talk about a thing called a fracture risk assessment or a FRAX. I suspect that many people listening to this episode of the podcast will have had a fracture risk assessment and perhaps already been offered a treatment on the back of that risk assessment. When do people have a fracture risk assessment? Well, that's a good question. And... Really, you can have a fracture risk assessment at any time. We talked, I think, in the first episode about us going on a journey through osteoporosis. And for many patients, it will feel for them as well that they are going on a journey. And the fracture risk assessment really can happen at any time on that journey. But it's probably true to say that the earlier it happens, the better. Most people... Uh, the diagnosis of osteoporosis will come as a shock to them. The diagnosis, of course, properly should come from a DEXA scan, according to the World Health Organization, um, 
whereas the management of the condition, and that is the choice of, of, of drugs or whether to treat people with drugs or not, is based more on their fracture risk assessment. Now that can be carried out in primary care. And I know many of the GPs who refer patients into me now use the online tool from the University of Sheffield to do a fracture risk assessment for the patient. There's no reason why a patient themselves cannot access that tool on the internet as well. Everyone who comes into secondary care, and certainly everyone who attends the fracture liaison service that I run at the hospital here, will have a FRAX score calculated, usually actually by the fracture liaison nurse when they come to the clinic. But what I find is patients are sometimes still a little in shock that they have fractured. They're in shock that they have osteoporosis. And I have to explain to them at that stage that I'm using the FRAX to guide and them towards the best management. It's not something that I use a, 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 as, a, as a figure by itself, but it's something I try to share with the patient and say to them that this is giving us an idea of how we should best treat you. I guess a question that people might have now is, uh, what does the fracture risk assessment include? Yeah, well, the, the fracture risk assessment is a, a calculation based on what are called independent risk factors. I know I mentioned this in the, in the first episode, but if you had 10 people in a room, you could ask them to, uh, to divide themselves in two. You could say those whose parent has fractured a hip, you go and stand on, on the right side of the room. Those whose parents didn't fracture a hip, you go and stand on the left and then all those who stood on the right side of the room would have a higher risk of having a fracture themselves than those on the left. If you then got everyone together again in the middle and said, I now want those who are current smokers to go and stand on the right, and those who don't smoke or have never smoked go and stand on the left. And again, you could point to those on the right and say, you will be at an increased risk of fracture in your lifetime. Now, if you're thinking you don't want to come to one of my parties, Richie, if this is the sort of games that we play, you'd maybe be justified in, in thinking that. I'll come to your party, David. <laughs> but at the end of an exciting evening, what I like to do then is say to my guests, those of you who spent most of the evening on the right side of the room, I can tell without even doing a DEXA scan, I can tell that you are at a much higher risk of fracture than those of my friends who spent most of their evening on the left side of the room. And at a very simple level, the FRAC score is, is, a, calc, is, a, is a complicated calculation to really put a, a figure uh, onto that process. And what you get is, is a figure uh, for your risk of having a major osteoporotic fracture or having a hip fracture specifically over the next 10 years. So David, what are the main questions you ask? when you deliver a FRAX for a patient? Asking if you've had a previous fracture yourself, if your parent fractured a hip, if you're a smoker, if you take glucocorticoids, or certainly if you take a, a reasonable dose for any length of time, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, if you have a range of secondary causes of osteoporosis or secondary contributors to osteoporosis, such as an early menopause, celiac disease, other malabsorption syndromes. If you take excessive amounts of alcohol, 
And in fact, it also includes height and weight because we know people who are very underweight uh, have an increased risk of low bone density and, and fracture as well. David, how are the results of the FRAX assessment expressed and how do you explain them to the patient? Say there's an algorithm that can be put together and, and produce a, a score at the end of all that. But the score has to be put in context for patients. Um, so simply to say to someone, you have a 20% risk of, let's say, fracturing your hip in the next 10 years. That has to be explained in the context of, of um, whether that's high or low for someone of their age and indeed what we can do to, to reduce that with medication. Your answer there, I think, neatly brings us on to our interview guest today. We have Professor Eugene McCloskey from Sheffield University, and this interview is a real coup. Eugene is huge in the bone world. He was a key member of the team that created the FRAX tool, which we've been talking about today. Over to you, David. We're delighted to welcome our first guest for the episode, indeed our first guest for the series, Professor Eugene McCluskey. Welcome to the podcast, Eugene. Thank you very much, David. It's a real pleasure to be here. Welcome to the Calcified Collagen Club. Your virtual membership card will be in the post. Good, good. Um, would you like just initially to sort of set out for us, you're, you're a medical doctor, you see patients, but you also are heavily involved in research. Um, you have your, your hand on the rudder of the good ship Frax. I've just thought of that metaphor. So if you want to discard <laughs> it, then feel free to do so. But could you initially just set out for us sort of what your role is, uh, what your job is, what you do day to day? Yeah, so um, I'm a, a specialist in metabolic bone diseases. Um, so that means that I'm a a failed GP, a failed rheumatologist, and a failed endocrinologist. Uh, so um, I um, started out wanting to medicine to be a GP, uh, fell in love with bones and calcium very early in my career, uh, did some rheumatology and endocrinology, and then specialized in metabolic bone diseases. And uh, so I started really working in the field of metastatic bone disease and the spread of cancer uh, to bone. Uh, but then it became quite clear that the real burden of disease was in this disease of osteoporosis. And uh, so in my day-to-day -day clinical practice, I see patients with uh, osteoporosis, but with a whole range of other metabolic bone diseases. Um, and that the nice thing was that I was able to combine that clinical career with a, a research career, uh, having sort of landed almost accidentally in Sheffield, where there was a huge interest in uh, bone research. Um, and my career arose from there. So it's really just a combination of trying to um, see and manage patients as best we can, but also to try and feed into how we might do things better in the future. It's very interesting how you said you did a little rheumatology and a little endocrinology and then ended up as a bone specialist. I think that's probably fuel for another episode in the future, whether or not it's possible to, to specialise as, as a bone expert in, in the UK, but what we really would like to, to hear from you today is, is more about FRAX. We talked about this a little in our first episode, how that we use the DEXA scanner to diagnose osteoporosis, but if our DEXA scanner is broken for the day, then there's all these other risk factors we can use to assess someone's actual risk of fracture and the concept of being able to put those together to, to 
produce some sort of a, a fracture risk. So could you give us some idea just of how FRAX was developed um, and, and maybe what the idea was behind it? Okay, the, the background to FRAX really is, gosh, it's almost uh, almost 25 years old now. And uh, this was back in the late uh, 1990s uh, when the uh, World Health Organization was looking at what was happening in the field of communicable diseases and looking towards the future. Um, and they realized that many of the communicable diseases were coming under control. And I would have to say that in the middle of uh, the biggest pandemic for the last 100 years. Uh, but they felt that uh, communicable diseases were coming under control and that the future burden of disease globally would be in non-communicable diseases. Uh, and they had a look at uh, diseases that they could uh, have an interest in. And they identified osteoporosis as one of those areas because the burden of fractures was high, particularly in developing countries uh, or developed countries, but was going to become increasingly high in developing countries in the future. So what they wanted to do was to have a, a mechanism by which uh, doctors and nurses working in various healthcare settings around the world could undertake a fairly simple assessment of someone's fracture risk that could be conducted if we had the luxury of access to a, a bone density scanner, or it could be conducted in the absence of that access, uh, and it would enable risk assessment through fairly simple, easily captured clinical risk factors. So it was that desire to have that such a tool uh, that led to uh, many years of uh, work around various meta-analyses of different risk factors and things that brought together the, the, the FRAX tool as it is today. And of course, it's a it's a living tool, uh, so it uh, we continue to tweak at it and we will continue to work on it to change it uh, in the future as well. Could you tell us how many times FRAX has been used? Uh, well, uh, that's, a, that's a good question, and the answer is I don't know, um, because the, the FRAX questionnaire is available in paper formats, uh, it's available in iPhone formats, and uh, it's available, the most common use that I'm familiar with, of course, is on the website, uh, the FRAX website, and um, we launched it in 2008, and it only occurred to us in 2011 that it would be quite interesting to put a counter on the website. Mm -hmm. So we started counting in 2011, and uh, there's just under 35 million um, uh, calculations since 2011 uh, on the on the website. Uh, we can look at it through other things such as Google Analytics, and in Google Analytics we don't count calculations, we count visits. Uh, and there we get about 2.8, 2.9 million visits per year. So it's getting reasonably well used. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic tool and is, is used, I think, around the world. Um, one of the things that occurs to people, I suppose, when they're using a day-to-day -day is just how the different uh, risk factors are weighted uh, in, in the algorithm. Could you give us a little background into how that was developed or how you and your, your colleagues went about weighting the different risk factors? Yeah, so the um, it'd be interesting to see how we develop such a tool today compared to how we did it, you know, twenty years ago. Mm. But it was really based on the the first thing was what were the candidate risk factors, and that was really driven by the clinical and scientific community as to what we thought the risk factors were. Uh, and then it was really a matter of getting access to cohorts 
where we could uh, explore these risk factors because we wanted it to be globally applicable. So uh, so we wanted to know that a risk factor uh, could perform equally well in Japan as in Australia, as in North America, as in Europe and so on. Uh, we wanted to uh, explore how those risk factors interacted with each other. So we wanted to have access to data sets that would allow us to adjust one risk factor for all the other risk factors that might be present in that individual. So it took quite a lot of time. Uh, also with the goal of trying to keep it simple because these things should be easily asked in a GP surgery anywhere in the world or a primary care facility anywhere in the world. Uh, so that was really uh, the construct that we brought together all these risk factors. Uh, we built a database that allowed us to adjust each risk factor for all the other risk factors and that really drove the coefficients that came about. And of course, uh, you would recognize that there are some strong risk factors and there are some weak risk factors. Um, and uh, a weak risk factor, for example, would be smoking or uh, or alcohol intake. And a strong risk factor would be having broken a bone already or being on glucocorticoid medications. Or uh, one of the strong risk factors is really the parental history of hip fracture. That really uh, affects about 9 or 10% of the population, but is a pretty strong risk factor. I suppose a question that springs to mind is, why does the FRAX tool use 10 years as the time frame for risk? Yeah, that's a good question and an increasingly asked question. And I think whenever we first uh, put it together, we, we partly looked at what was happening in other disease areas. Um, so the cardiovascular world were a little bit ahead of us uh, in terms of risk calculators, and they were using 10-year uh, risk predictions. And that was seemed intuitive to us because we would be looking at maybe giving a treatment over a four or five, six year term at least to modify fracture risk. So knowing your fracture risk in the longer term, if you call 10 years long term, uh, seemed uh, an attractive thing to do. It's also about the numbers. Uh, so uh, the risk over a longer time is higher than the risk over a shorter time. Just uh, that's a, a natural fact of, of the mathematics. Uh, so expressing risk over a short period of time uh, just generates a lower number. And uh, then it comes down to how patients under, understand risk. But generally, if you give them a low number for an event, that means they either have to change their lifestyle or take a treatment to modify uh, that risk. The lower the number is, the less likely they are uh, to react to that uh, advice. So that was really why it was over 10 years uh, at, the, at that time. How well do patients understand the fracture risk prediction calculated over 10 years? Um, that's, a, a, again, a good question that we haven't really done uh, specific research into. There has been research done in other areas with other risk assessments and expressed to patients uh, over uh, short periods, one year, five years, 10 years. Uh, and the feedback from those sort of studies is that generally the patients prefer the longer time interval because the number is bigger. It's something that they can get their head around uh, much more easily uh, than uh, the smaller number over a shorter time frame. Uh, so we haven't looked at it specifically uh, with FRAX, uh, but it really comes down to whether you think 10 years is long term or in the concept of life, remaining lifetime risk, whether it's actually a short term, uh, a short term uh, after all. That reminds me of something my granny once said. I remember when I was about 16, I asked her why it was that every year seems to go quicker than the last year. And she replied, 
when you get to my age, every decade goes quicker than the last decade. Yes, yes. No, that's uh, and that's said to us a lot uh, in uh, in our clinics. Uh, and with uh, with increasing age, we all appreciate that um, even even more. So uh, I think it's uh, remaining lifetime uh, is an important concept and the older we get remaining lifetime becomes more important it's something we're hoping to talk to zoe paskins about later on in this episode because she has done some some specific work on communicating risk to patients so it's very good uh, it's a very interesting area yeah once a patient has had the initial risk assessment with frax is it possible to use the frax tool for monitoring bone health or treatment outcomes the short answer to that is no, um, and uh, the tool was never really designed to be a sort of monitoring tool because when you think about it, um, there's a relatively small number of risk factors in there, uh, and then what can you change with the treatment? Uh, so we can't make you younger. Uh, we could stop your glucocorticoids if that was part of the management uh, strategy, and for example, the epidemiological data would say that, that risk reverses uh, to some extent. But really, the things that we're doing with the treatments that we're giving are to change your BMD, um, and monitoring BMD actually seems a much more direct measure of response to treatment, and in some cases, um, some of us would say actually responsive biochemical markers uh, as an even better acute uh, measure of response to bisphosphonate treatments or response to anabolic treatments than even BMD is. So we don't encourage its use as, as, a, as a marker of response uh, to treatment because, as I say, your risk will tend to go up anyway as you get older and you tend to collect other risk factors uh, which are independent of the treatment that we're giving. It's it's great to be able to sort of see behind the curtain a bit into the development of FRAX and the thinking of, of how FRAX works. I mean, there's, there's, I suppose there's a couple of questions that regular users of FRAX always ask and would be it would be remiss of me not to ask them of, of you today, Eugene. I mean, one of them, I suppose, is the is the what you might call the weaker areas of it or the patients for whom we calculate a FRAX and then we come away and maybe don't even present it to the patient because we know it's not it's not as good for that patient. So what I'm talking about, for example, is the patient who says, I have two sisters and they've both fractured a hip and my brother's got osteoporosis. And I know I would like to include that as a strong family history for that patient, but I can't because it's not a it's not a parental hip fracture. Or, for example, the patient who has fractured a wrist once 10 years ago, compared with the patient who has had six vertebral fractures in the last few months, and yet that those are sort of equally weighted in, in fracs. And those are areas which obviously come up as, as weaker. Um, those obviously occur to you when you're when it was developed or? Oh, for sure. Uh... You know, this is the this is the limitation of every single tool in medicine. Uh, 
Uh, I think you can only build a tool on the information that's available to you. Uh, and then it comes down to us as clinicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals to apply the art uh, of medicine to the science. Um, and uh, so, for example, you know, we would love to have had information on siblings and hip fracture risk and other risks, but we just don't have ac access to that sort of information. What I tend to do in my practice is that I illustrate the potential impact of including that risk factor. So uh, I will say, you know, okay, your two sisters have broken their hip, uh, but uh, I can't put that into the model. But I can show you what it would look like if your mum had broken her hip. Uh, and it gives you an illustration of the uplift in the risk that might come because of that family history uh, that's there. So I think I use it in a sort of illustrative way uh, rather than uh, and a, an artistic way, if you like, rather than a scientific, a scientific way. Do you know that... I was going to say that's such a, a such a reassuring thing to hear you say because I think many of us in the osteoporosis community will do that sort of thing, but wouldn't have admitted it on air before. But <laughs> now, as the as the man, I go for the ship metaphor again. The man with his hand on the rudder of the good ship Frax has admitted that he sometimes does that. I think we will all feel maybe happier at, at, at using exactly that sort of thing, saying this is what it is, but. It, you know, if, if we were able to include that, then it would change differently. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, as I say, you can apply that to any tool that's out there for cardiovascular disease or for diabetes and so on, because there's always limitations in the data. And what we want to do is, I think, we always want that sort of combination of what we think is right for the individual patient in front of us. Um, but... The nice thing about these tools is that they sometimes make us step back a little bit and think, well, maybe that risk isn't as high as I thought it was going to be. Uh, it doesn't fit my preconceptions, or maybe it's much higher than I thought it was going to be. Um, and maybe I'm taking an action that I wouldn't have planned otherwise. So I think the interaction between us as users and the tool is, is really uh, an important one. Uh, of course, there are some patients for which you don't need fracs. Uh, so, uh, you know, when someone says to me about the patient with six vertebral fractures, uh, I never look at fracs uh, in that setting because that patient needs treatment and it's just really a choice for me. How can I treat them best? Uh, what's the sequence of therapy that I'm going to use? How can I monitor a response uh, in that individual uh, rather than what their fracs assessment will be? So I think we just need to be uh, remember that tools such as FRACs are never the complete gatekeeper into management pathways for individual patients sitting in front of us. Which brings me right nicely, I suppose, to the last main question, and that is about future developments of FRACs. Um, if, they are, if they are happening and if they were to happen, which areas would you be looking to develop? Yeah, so so they are happening. I guess uh, all along we've been sort of um, uh, adding to the tool by adding in new countries and new epidemiology uh, from different countries, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, but we're frequently reminded, as you mentioned earlier, in the limitations, we're frequently reminded about the lack of falls input uh, to the uh, to the uh, uh, the tool and other uh, limitations as well that we openly uh, acknowledge. So there's a desire on our part to include. Uh, easily captured further clinical risk factors and to update the coefficients that we have for the existing risk factors because they might, might change over time with further information as well. So really that just comes down to collecting uh, lots more cohorts and the nice thing is that 
the number of cohorts that has become available over the last 20 years uh, or so, um, well, certainly the 13 years since we launched FRAX, is that there's a lot more information out there. There's a lot more information on men and risk factors for osteoporosis uh, than there were back in the uh, early 2000s. So we're in the process of just pulling that all together. Um, and uh, we have uh, a substantial, I mean, the lovely thing is that we have a lovely collaboration with all these various cohorts from all around the world who provide the individual level data that will allow us uh, in uh, meta-analysis to uh, adjust for all these different risk factors. The key ones, I think, are uh, falls. I think we have to address falls in one way or another. We tried to address it in the original FRAX, but the question around falls was only present in a small number of the cohorts available to us, and it was asked in different ways over different time frames. Have you fallen in the last week? Have you fallen in the last year? Have you fallen? And that impacts on the prevalence wildly. Uh, so we hope to be able to look at falls. Uh, we know that falls uh, are already captured to some extent by FRAX because most fractures involve a fall. Uh, so if you had a fracture, that's already put some sort of fall input to it. If you're 10 years older, we know your falls risk has gone up. Uh, that age captures some of that falls risk, but we want to really refine that and uh, make it an individual data entry point if possible. Other things like diabetes, uh, particularly type 2 diabetes, lots of information coming through on that. And uh, uh, the secondary causes basket in uh, FRAX was something that we took a really conservative approach to. So uh, rheumatoid arthritis was a standalone disease uh, for entry as a variable because there was pretty good evidence back in the 2000s that rheumatoid arthritis had a risk of fracture that was independent of glucocorticoid use and was independent of BMD. For all the other secondary causes, we made the assumption that most of their risk is mediated by their impact on BMD. So once I know your BMD, the disease itself didn't carry any additional weight. And that was a really conservative uh, position to take. Uh, and again, we hope to be able to look at other diseases, including type 2 diabetes, and see uh, how we can include those, maybe not in the secondary causes box, but make them standalone uh, entry variables uh, in the tool. Your achievement in delivering FRAX and improving so many people's lives is absolutely incredible. How does it feel to have been able to do that? Um, uh, very fortunate. I mean, um, uh, uh, you have to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to work with some brilliant people who had visions that uh, inspired me and got me involved uh, in, in the research. And as I say, the, the bone research team in uh, Sheffield was uh, fantastic through uh, people like John Canis, Graham Russell and, uh, and uh, Richard Eastall and others. So it was really a great environment to uh, work within. Um, the fact that we've had a clinically applicable tool is really just a wonderful thing. Um, uh, and it really is still amazes me that we are, are in a position now where, as experts, we used to tot up in our heads, oh, that risk factor increases the risk. And the addition of that risk factor I know will increase the risk. But I couldn't put a number on it. I couldn't have a magnitude for it. Uh, and for us to be able to do that now and for GPs to be able to do that and for other healthcare professionals to be able to do that, uh, to allow them to make decisions in routine daily clinical practice is just, uh, I, I think it's just been very fortunate to be part of that team. Um, and uh, we hope to continue to improve it.
That's wonderful. It's been really interesting talking to you today, Eugene. We really appreciate you coming on. And you have given us some genuine insights and not even one or two clinical pointers as well to how we should use FRACs. Perhaps you would come on in the future at some point and talk to us about other interesting things that you do. No, that'd be absolutely a pleasure. And it's uh, really, it's really uh, good to be able to talk about these things um, in uh, sort of this sort of setting. So uh, thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you very much for joining us, Eugene. You've set a very high bar for the rest of our <laughs> podcast series. Yeah, you can edit that bit out. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, Richie, I'm, I'm interested here because I'm someone who uses FRACs every day. As I said earlier, it, it's like my stethoscope as an osteoporosis specialist using FRACs. You're someone who comes uh, from more of a distance to it as a, as a bone research scientist and as a specialist in, in, in the science of bone. What did you learn about FRACs or predicting the chances of patients fracturing? I learned a lot from today's chat with Eugene. I suppose to give some background on this, the reason why I wanted to start doing this podcast with you is so that I could learn more about the diagnostics and fracture risk assessments in clinical practice. Because I hope that maybe one day my research is going to feed in and improve those measurements and help to prevent fractures. And I've always found DEXA and FRACs a bit confusing. It's really hard to understand how they work. And really, Eugene was the, the most important interview that I wanted to do. And the thing that I really took away today, generally, is that FRAX is a very personalized way of doing medicine that allows the clinician perhaps to communicate with the patient on a very personal level and to tell them what's wrong with their bones and maybe how effective treatments might be in preventing new fractures. And the other thing that I learned today is just how well used Fraxes. I think that Eugene says they've got what 2.5 million Frax calculated a year and that is the lower estimate and maybe 35 million hits a year on the website. I didn't realize that Frax was such a global tool and I suppose the thing that I was most pleased to hear about today is that Frax is a really wonderful tool for helping people to take positive action in their lives. That the tool can be used to guide patients, guide people towards uh, treatments or lifestyle changes or supplements or vitamins, whatever the intervention might be, to improve their bone health. And uh, I know we're going to talk about some of those things in future episodes. You're the doctor who uses this every day. At the beginning of this episode, we got your view on FRAX and clearly you're very knowledgeable about it. Today was your, your chance to talk to the creator of FRAX as well. I wondered, what did you learn today? Yeah, I think anyone who uses FRAX anywhere in the world will be excited to hear that there are developments planned. I think anyone who has an inquisitive mind and gets any new tool or machine, once you get over the initial excitement of using it, you wonder how it works. 
and then you start to wonder if you could improve it. And it was very exciting to hear Eugene saying today that there are, you know, there are improvements planned. On a day-to-day basis, one of the one of the the weaknesses of Frax, I suppose, if you could call it that, was this inability to incorporate family history other than hip fracture into it. And I was really interested to hear how Eugene dealt with that because what we have are many patients for whom family history is really important in their fracture risk. In some patients that manifests as their parent fracturing a hip. And if that's the case, then we can tick the the family history box or the parental hip fracture box. And that moves that patient's personal FRAC score up quite a bit. If it hasn't manifested by their parent fracturing a hip, if, if maybe they have three siblings who fracture a hip, then it doesn't get included in FRACs. And we, as day-to-day users, can come away a little disappointed, feeling we haven't been able to really represent to the patient the risk we feel that they're at. And it was really good to hear Eugene explaining how he can reconcile those two things by saying to the patient, uh, you appear to have a family history. We don't have the data to give you an exact figure because your family history has been manifested, for example, in your siblings. But if that family history had been manifested, for example, by your mother breaking her hip, here's the score that you would have got. I can't tell you that's exactly your score, but it gives you some idea of the level of concern I have for you uh, because of your family history. And I thought that's a, a very clever way, a very nice way of being true to the data and saying to the patient, we don't have the data for siblings or for cousins or for uncles or aunts or grandparents, but we do have the data for, for parents and it's just a nice way of including family history in the calculation while being being true to the data. So that's, again, one thing that I will take away that will probably influence my day-to-day practice. And indeed, I can see myself in the clinic within the next week using exactly that tool for patients. That's such an amazing outcome from today's interview. And I suppose it's time to draw this episode to a close. My mam listened to the first episode. And she said to me, Richie, keep it short and bite size. So, <laughs> so I'm going to take her advice. Um, I've really enjoyed doing this uh, episode with you and I look forward to seeing you again, David. Yeah, looking forward to the next episode. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye now.